Section 23 of The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2, by Charles E. Flandro. Section 23 the aboriginal war correspondent from the earliest days of recorded history man has regarded his prowess in war as the most valuable of his exploits and success in war has generally been measured by the number of slain on the battlefield i don't know how the facts were arrived at in ancient times and whether or not they had war correspondents who followed the armies and reported their doings i can't say but as the art of printing was unknown and the means of communication were very limited, it seems doubtful if the results were arrived at in that way. From what I know of human nature and character, I am convinced that, if the reports were made through the commanders in the field, the lists of the enemy slain must fairly be discounted about 25%. Have we not had reports of the most exaggerated character as to the number of prisoners captured and enemies killed so recently as our civil war and have we ever read of a battle with the indians or other uncivilized people where after giving our own losses we have not met with the old stereotyped report that the loss of the enemy was far greater but as they always remove their dead and wounded it is impossible to ascertain the exact number the wars now raging in the philippines and samoa form no exception to this familiar report so far as our fights with the american indians are concerned i feel quite confident that where we have killed one indian we have lost ten whites take it through from the atlantic to the pacific but you can't figure out any such results from the reports which have made up history the temptation to exaggerate for the purpose of hero-making and future political preferment is too great to be resisted and the consequence is that truth suffers amazingly perhaps it is better for mankind that the slaughter should be on paper rather than in fact modern warfare has introduced the new element of the war correspondent he is generally either a creature of the commander or desirous of flattering him for personal advantage or some other consideration and he piles on the praises of the side he represents diminishes the credit due the enemy and resolves every doubt against him now the indian has a way of arriving at the truth of such matters which is infinitely more satisfactory than that of his white brother he knows just as well as any one what boasters all men are on matters relating to their own exploits and especially those relating to war and in order that there shall be no humbug about such matters he will give no credence to any statement that is not accompanied by the most irrefragable proof when a warrior comes home and says i killed six enemies on my last raid he is confronted with the demand to produce his evidence and the only evidence admissible is the scalps of his dead enemies should he make such an assertion without the proof he would be left out of the camp as a silly boaster most people think the practice of scalping an enemy generally indulged in by the sioux is a wanton desire cruelly to mutilate the foe such is not the case at all 
he is prompted solely by the desire of procuring proof of his success, and he will take more chances to get a scalp than he would for any other object in life. Among the Sioux, and I believe most of the tribes of North America, for every enemy killed, a warrior is entitled to wear a headdress with an eagle feather in it, which to him fills the same place in his character and reputation as the Victoria Cross, or the Medal of the Legion of Honor, or any of the numerous decorations bestowed upon white men for deeds of bravery and honor. And to gain this distinction, he is moved by the same impulse that actuated Hobson in sinking the Merrimack in the harbor of Santiago, or the actors in the thousand and one daring deeds in which men in all ages have freely risked their lives. Scalping is an art, and the manner in which it is done depends wholly upon the circumstances of the occasion. A complete and perfect scalp embraces the whole hair of the head, with a margin of skin all round it about two and a half inches in width, including both ears with all their ornaments. This can only be obtained when the victor has abundant time to operate leisurely. When he is beset by the enemy, all he can do, as a general thing, is to seize the hair with the left hand and hold up the scalp with it, and then give a quick cut with his knife and get as big a piece as he can. By this hurried process, he rarely gets a piece larger than a small saucer, and generally not bigger than a silver dollar. But no matter how small it may be, it entitles him to his feather. Among the Sioux, the killing of a full-grown grizzly bear is equivalent to the killing of an enemy, and entitles the victor to the same decoration. I have known Indians who bore as many as sixteen feathers. It is not alone the importance that these decorations give the wearer which enters into their value. When he returns from the warpath, bearing scalps, he is received by all his band with demonstrations of the greatest pride and honor. If you can imagine Dewey landing at New York from the Philippines, you can form some idea of the honors that would be heaped upon a victorious savage. If the weather is pleasant, he strips to the waist and paints his body jet black. He places on the top of his head a round ball of pure white swan's down about the size of a large orange, and takes in his hand a staff about five feet long with a buckskin fringe tacked onto the upper three feet of it. On the end of each shred of the fringe is a piece of a deer's hoof, forming a rattle, by striking together when shaken up and down. When arrayed in this manner, he marches up and down the village, recounting, in a sort of a chant, the entire history of the events of the raid on the enemy, going into the most minute details, and indulging in much imagination and superstition. He tells what he dreamed, what animals he saw, and how all these things influenced his conduct. He continues this ceremony for days and days, and is the admiration of all the people. I have seen four or five of them together promenading in this way, and have taken an interpreter and marched with them by the hour, listening to their stories. When this part of the performance is over, the scalps are tanned by the women, as they would tan a buffalo skin, the inside painted red, and the whole stretched out on a circular hoop about the size of a barrel hoop, to which is attached a straight handle about four feet long, so that it can be carried in the air above the heads of the people. It is also decorated with all the trinkets found on the person of the slain. Then begins the dancing. When night comes, the men arrange themselves in two lines, about fifteen feet apart, 
facing each other, all provided with tom-toms and musical instruments of all kinds known to the savage. When everything is ready, they sing a kind of a weird chant, keeping time with the instruments and their feet. Then the squaws, with the scalps head aloft, dance in between the lines of men from opposite directions until they meet, when they chasse to the right and left, then dance back and forward again, every once in a while emitting a sharp little screech, which I have never known to be successfully imitated. During the dance, the men join in a kind of shuffle from right to left and back again, keeping the music going all the time. The whole performance is one of the most savage and weird ceremonies I have ever witnessed. It is kept up for weeks. It was a frequent amusement for half a dozen of us to throw blankets over our heads and join in the dance for half an hour or so. I have been lulled to sleep many times by this wild music, heard from a distance of half a mile, on a still night. It was supposed that when the scalp was taken, while the leaves were on the trees, it was danced over until they fell, and then buried, and when taken in winter, it was buried when the leaves came in the spring. But I never was quite sure about this. I wanted one very much once, and a party of us went in the night just back of St. Peter, where we supposed they had been buried, and dug for them, and to our horror struck the toes of a dead Indian. That cured my desire in this direction. End of section 23